Section 23, More Crusades, Part 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. I have now sketched out briefly the leading features of the threefold scheme by which I think a way can be opened out of darkest England, by which its forlorn denizens can escape into the light and freedom of a new life. But it is not enough to make a clear, broad road out of the heart of this dense and matted jungle forest. Its inhabitants are in many cases so degraded so hopeless, so utterly desperate, that we shall have to do something more than make roads. As we read in the parable, it is often not enough that the feast be prepared and the guests be bidden. We must needs go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. So it is not enough to provide our city colony and our farm colony and then rest on our oars as if we had done our work. That kind of thing will not save the lost. It is necessary to organize rescue expeditions, to free the miserable wanderers from their captivity, and bring them out into the larger liberty and the fuller life. Talk about Stanley and Eamon. There is not one of us but has had an Eamon somewhere or other in the heart of darkest England, whom he ought to sally forth to rescue. Our Emons have the devil for their Mahadi, and when we get to them we find that it is their friends and neighbors who hold them back, and they are oh so irresolute. It needs each of us to be as indomitable as Stanley, to burst through all obstacles, to force our way right to the center of things, and then to labor with the poor prisoner of vice and crime with all our might. But had not the Expeditionary Committee furnished the financial means whereby a road was open to the sea, both Stanley and Eamon would probably have been in the heart of darkest Africa to this day. This scheme is our Stanley Expedition. The analogy is very close. I propose to make a road clear down to the sea, but alas, our poor Eamon, even when the road is open, he halts and lingers and doubts. First he will, and then he won't, and nothing less than the irresistible pressure of a friendly and stronger purpose will constrain him to take the road which has been opened for him at such a cost of blood and treasure. I now, therefore, proceed to sketch some of the methods by which we shall attempt to save the lost and to rescue those who are perishing in the midst of darkest England. A Slum Crusade, Our Slum Sisters When Professor Huxley lived as a medical officer in the east of London, he acquired a knowledge of the actual condition of the life of many of its populace, which led him long afterwards to declare that the surroundings of the savages of new guinea were much more conducive to the leading of a decent human existence than those in which many of the east enders live alas it is not only in london that such lairs exist in which the savages of civilization lurk and breed all the great towns in both the old world and the new 
have their slums in which huddle together in festering and verminous filth men women and children they correspond to the lepers who thronged the lazar houses of the middle ages as in those days saint francis of assisi and the heroic band of saints who gathered under his orders were wont to go and lodge with the lepers at the city gates so the devoted souls who have enlisted in the salvation army take up their quarters in the heart of the worst slums but whereas the friars were men our slum brigade is composed of women i have a hundred of them under my orders young women for the most part quartered all of them in outposts in the heart of the devil's country most of them are the children of the poor who have known hardship from their youth up some are ladies born and bred who have not been afraid to exchange the comfort of a west end drawing-room for service among the vilest of the vile and a residence in small and fetid rooms whose walls were infested with vermin they lived the life of the crucified for the sake of the men and women for whom he lived and died they form one of the branches of the activity of the army upon which i dwell with deepest sympathy they are at the front they are at close quarters with the enemy to the dwellers in decent homes who occupy cushioned pews in fashionable churches there is something strange and quaint in the language they hear read from the bible language which habitually refers to the devil as an actual personality and to the struggle against sin and uncleanness as if it were a hand-to-hand -hand death wrestle with the legions of hell to our little sisters who dwell in an atmosphere heavy with curses among people sodden with drink in quarters where sin and uncleanliness are universal all these biblical sayings are as real as the quotations of yesterday's price of counsels are to a city man they dwell in the midst of hell and in their daily warfare with a hundred devils it seems incredible to them that anyone can doubt the existence of either one or the other the slum sister is what her name implies the sister of the slum they go forth in apostolic fashion two and two living in a couple of the same kind of dens or rooms as are occupied by the people themselves differing only in the cleanliness and order in the few articles of furniture which they contain here they live all the year round visiting the sick looking after the children showing the women how to keep themselves and their homes decent often discharging the sick mother's duties themselves cultivating peace advocating temperance counseling in temporalities and ceaselessly preaching the religion of jesus christ to the outcasts of society i do not like to speak of their work words fail me and what i say is so unworthy the theme i prefer to quote two descriptions by journalists who have seen these girls at work in the field the first is taken from a long article which julia hayes percy contributed to the new york world describing a visit paid by her to the slum quarters of the salvation army in cherry hill alleys 
in the Whitechapel of New York. Twenty-four hours in the slums, just a night and a day, yet into them were crowded such revelations of misery, depravity, and degradation as having once been gazed upon, life can never be the same afterwards. Around and above this blighted neighborhood flows the tide of active, prosperous life. Men and women travel past in streetcars by the elevated railroad and across the bridge, and take no thought of its wretchedness, of the criminals bred there, and of the disease engendered by its foulness. It is a fearful menace to the public health, both moral and physical, yet the multitude is as heedless of danger as the peasant who makes his house and plants green vineyards and olives above Vesuvian fires. We are almost as careless and quite as unknowing as we pass the bridge in the late afternoon. Our immediate destination is the Salvation Army Barracks in Washington Street, and we are going finally to the Salvation Officers, two young women who have been dwelling in doing a noble mission work for months in one of the worst corners of New York's most wretched quarter. These officers are not living under the aegis of the army, however. The blue, bordered flag is furled out of sight. The uniforms and poke bonnets are laid away, and there are no drums or tambourines. The banner over them is love of their fellow creatures, among whom they dwell upon an equal plane of poverty, wearing no better clothes than the rest, eating coarse and scanty food, and sleeping upon hard cots or upon the floor. Their lives are consecrated to God's service among the poor of the earth. One is a woman in the early prime of vigorous life, the other a girl of eighteen. The elder of these devoted women is awaiting us at the barracks to be our guide to slumdom. She is tall, slender, and clad in a coarse brown gown, mended with patches. A big gingham apron, artistically rent in several places, is tied about her waist. She wears an old plaid woolen shawl and an ancient brown straw hat. Her dress indicates extreme poverty. Her face denotes perfect peace. This is M, says Mrs. Ballington Booth, and after this introduction we sally forth. More and more wretched grows the district as we penetrate further. M pauses before a dirty, broken, smoke-dimmed window through which in a dingy room are seen a party of roughs, dark-looking men, drinking and squabbling at a table. They are our neighbors in the front. We enter the hallway and proceed to the rear room. It is tiny, but clean and warm. A fire burns on the little cracked stove, which stands up bravely on three legs, with a brick eking out its support at the fourth corner. A tin lamp stands on the table, half a dozen chairs, one of which has arms, but must have renounced its rockers long ago, and a packing-box, upon which we deposit our shawls, constitute the furniture. Opening from this is a small dark bedroom, with one cot made up and another folded against the wall. 
against a door which must communicate with the front room, in which we saw the disagreeable-looking men sitting, is a wooden table for the hand-basin. A small trunk and a barrel of clothing complete the inventory. M's sister in the slum work gives us a sweet, shy welcome. She is a Swedish girl, with fair complexion and crisp, bright hair peculiar to the Scandinavian blonde type. Her head reminds me of a Grenze that hangs in the Louvre, with its low knot of rippling hair which fluffs out from her brow and frames a dear little face with soft, childish outlines. A nez retroussé, a tiny mouth like a crushed pink rose, and wistful blue eyes. This girl has been a Salvationist for two years. During that time she has learned to speak, read, and write English, while she has constantly labored among the poor and wretched. The house where we find ourselves was formerly notorious as one of the worst in the Cherry Hill district. It has been the scene of some memorable crimes, and among them that of the Chinaman who slew his Irish wife after the manner of Jack the Ripper, on the staircase leading to the second floor. A notable change has taken place in the tenements since Maddie and M have lived there, and their gentle influence is making itself felt in the neighboring houses as well. It is nearly eight o'clock when we sally forth. Each of us carries a handful of printed slips bearing a text of scripture and a few words of warning to lead the better life. These furnish an excuse for entering places where otherwise we could not go, explains M. After arranging a rendezvous, we separate. Maddie and Liz go off in one direction, and M and I in another. From this, our progress seems like a descent into Tartarus. M pauses before a miserable-looking saloon, pushes open the low, swinging door, and we go in. It is a low-ceilinged room, dingy with dirt, dim with the smoke, nauseating with the fumes of sour beer and vile liquor. A sloppy bar extends along one side, and opposite is a long table, with indescribable viands littered over it interspersed with empty glasses, battered hats, and cigar stumps. A motley crowd of men and women jostle in the narrow space. M speaks to the soberest looking of the lot. He listens to her words. Others crowd about. Many accept the slips we offer, and gradually as the throng separates to make way, we gain the further end of the apartment. M's serious, sweet, saint-like face I follow like a star. All sense of fear slips from me, and a great pity fills my soul as I look upon the various types of wretchedness. As the night wears on, the whole apartment seems to wake up. Every house is alight. The narrow sidewalks and filthy streets are full of people. Miserable little children with sin-stamped faces dart about like rats. Little ones who ought to be in their cribs shift for themselves and sleep on cellar doors and areas and under carts. A few vendors are abroad with their wares 
but the most of the traffic going on is of a different description. Along Water Street are women conspicuously dressed in gaudy colors. Their heavily painted faces are bloated or pinched. They shiver in the raw night air. Liz speaks to one who replies that she would like to talk, but dare not, and as she says this, an old hag comes to the door and cries, Get along! Don't hinder her work! During the evening, a man to whom M. has been talking has told her, You ought to join the Salvation Army. They are the only good women who bother us down here. I don't want to lead that sort of life, but I must go where it is light and warm and clean after working all day, and there isn't any place but this to come to, exclaimed the man. You will appreciate the plea tomorrow when you see how the people live, M says, as we turn our steps towards the tenement room, which seems like an oasis of peace and purity after the howling desert we have been wandering in. Em and Maddie brew some oatmeal gruel, and, being chilled and faint, we enjoy a cup of it. Liz and I share a cot in the outer room. We are just going to sleep when agonized cries ring out through the night. Then the tones of a woman's voice pleading pitifully reach our ears. We are unable to distinguish her words, but the sound is heart-rending. It comes from one of those dreadful Water Street houses, and we all feel that a tragedy is taking place. There is a sound of crashing blows, and then silence. It is customary in the slums to leave the house door open perpetually, which is convenient for tramps who creep into the hallways to sleep at night, thereby saving the few pence it costs to occupy a spot in the cheap lodging houses. Em and Matt keep the corridor without their room beautifully clean, and so it has become an especial favorite stamping ground for these vagrants. We were told this when Matty locked and bolted the door and then tied the keys and the door handle together, so we understand why there are shuffling steps along the corridor, bumping against the panels of the door, and heavily breathing without during the long hours of the night. All day M and Matt have been toiling among their neighbors, and the night before last they sat up with a dying woman. They are worn out and sleep heavily. Liz and I lay awake and wait for the coming of the morning. We are too oppressed by what we have seen and heard to talk. In the morning Liz and I peep over into the rear houses where we heard those dreadful shrieks in the night. There is no sign of life but we discover enough filth to breed diphtheria and typhoid throughout a large section. In the area below our window there are several inches of stagnant water, in which is heaped a mass of old shoes, cabbage heads, garbage, rotten wood, bones, rags and refuse, and a few dead rats. We understand now why M keeps her room full of disinfectants. She tells us that she dare not make any appeal to the sanitary authorities, either on behalf of their own or any other dwelling, for fear of antagonizing the people, who consider such officials as their natural enemies. The first visit we pay is up a number of eccentric little flights of shaky steps, 
interspersed with twists of passageway. The floor is full of holes. The stairs have been patched here and there, but look perilous and sway beneath the feet. A low door on the landing is opened by a bundle of rags and filth, out of which issues a woman's voice in husky tones, bidding us enter. She has le grip. We have to stand very close together, for the room is small, and already contains three women, a man, a baby, a bedstead, a stove, and indescribable dirt. The atmosphere is rank with impurity. The man is evidently dying. Seven weeks ago he was gripped. He is now in the last stages of pneumonia. M. has tried to induce him to be removed to the hospital, and he gasps out his desire to die in comfort in my own bed. Comfort! The bed is a rack heaped with rags. Sheets, pillowcases, and nightclothes are not in vogue in the slums. A woman lies asleep on the dirty floor with her head under the table. Another woman, who has been sharing the night watch with the invalid's wife, is finishing her morning meal, in which roast oysters on the half-shell are conspicuous. A child that appears never to have been washed toddles about the floor and tumbles over the sleeping woman's form. M. gives it some gruel and ascertains that its name is Christine. End of section 23. Recording by Tom Hirsch.